You could download that song on iTunes. The band is, uh, they've elevated. Hey, well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see everybody. I wanted to welcome back. Where's Carolina? Carolina and David, welcome back, Carolina. She's back from serving in overseas on board the military ship, and she has returned to us. We're so grateful to have you back, sister, and her husband, David, right there. We're grateful to have you back, too, bro, and looking forward to reconnecting. So if you haven't already, please make sure to encourage uh, Carolina and David. You know, it's been a great morning so far, and we're doing our third uh, installment on a Sunday, uh, and then we're going to have one more uh, lesson at midweek uh, on stewardship. And uh, it's an important topic. You know, someone said, if you want your church to be a giving church, a generous church, don't tell them to give. Teach them to give. And that's why these teachings are here, is to teach us the words of God and how to handle money and possessions. Do we have the right to earn or keep large amounts of money? Does Scripture call all disciples? to surrender their possessions and live by faith? Is it Christ honoring to live comfortably? How should we live? Well, one thing is for sure. As Dean talked about God's economy versus man's economy, if you missed that lesson, it's online. It's a great lesson. You should listen to it, download it on your iPod or whatever you do. Go jogging in your car, burn it on a CD. Listen to that lesson. It's a great lesson. One way... Of God's way, of really getting back to the garden state, God's economy, is we have to work to earn money. Only government and counterfeits make money. We have to earn it. It's our work in the garden. It's our work on the earth. The rest of us have to earn it, inherit it, win it, lottery, Work is God-ordained, and it's a means to contributing to our society, finding fulfillment and meeting material needs so we can provide for our families. You know, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, it says this, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We have to work. It's part of God's plan. It's part of our earth. It's part of our our, our working in God's economy is work, but it shifts to man's economy depending on how we handle our money and possessions. And Dean's going to do a lesson on Tuesday to kind of close us up and go back to the garden and finish up this part two of that lesson. So brothers, we're in for a real treat. Every person in this room is a worker, regardless of your age, ability, or handicap. Everyone can make a meaningful contribution to a family and society through work even if it's unpaid or simple. My son has a job in our house. His job is to, to, to clean up and vacuum the floors. And we have one little rug there. We have a laminate floor, but it's a rug. He's, it's his job. Vacuum and make your bed. That's his job. And I hope it brings fulfillment and meaning to his life. It sure does to mine. I'm a man who works for free in my house, as many of you work for free in your house. The garbage... Is my job. You know, when I see, when, uh, when I see kitchens in the, uh, uh, tissues in the, in, the, in the sink, I know it's usually Karen does it, but I do it. It's free labor to serve. It's, it brings happiness. Uh, we go to work. Sometimes I work late nights, early mornings, 
Sometimes my phone never stops ringing. Sometimes I wish for an 8 to 5. Instead of verses 24, I never know. I got to sleep with my phone on, you know, next to you. Okay, make sure you hear it because it might go off. You know, um, I appreciate the prayers for Renee and Jeanette's mother-in-law, Jeanette's mother, Renee's mother-in-law, who uh, suffered a stroke, blood clot, and it, and it hemorrhaged in her brain. They could not do surgery. She was unconscious. And immediately we sent out a text message to disciples or to le- the leadership in particular to begin praying for her. It was 24 hours was touch and go whether she was going to make it or not. And she came out of it without needing surgery and, this, and the par- paralyzation will be, is going to be at a minimal at best. So God answered an amazing prayer. She's with her now. There's still some high blood pressure there. But please be praying for Jeanette and her mother um, through, this, through this challenging time. So God's way is for us to work. You know, in Proverbs 12, verse 11, it says, Those who work their land will have plenty of food, but the one who chases empty dreams is not wise. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says this. This is from some very important instructions. Do all that you can to live a peaceful life. Take care of your own business and do your, work, do your own work as you've already been told to do. If you do then people who are not believers will respect you. And you will not have to depend on others for what you need. You know, there's something to be said about having that kind of principle in your life. People actually pay attention and are very respectful. They're actually very impressed by how we live our lives. You know, work. The Bible says God gives us skill to do it. In Exodus 35, verse 30, it's a great passage for you to reference in, in your quiet times. God gives certain people the ability to do certain things so they can work. In this case, he gave the men the ability to make the Ark of the Covenant who are, who are skilled. God does do that. You know, as disciples, we're supposed to see God as our main employer. Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, you're doing it for the Lord. So to a Christian in work, God is really our employer. So you can forget about, you can, you can erase the face of your boss, which we love to do, take off the horns and the tail, and look at your employer as God. You know, employees are to work hard and well, realizing if their employers don't reward them, God will. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Even if your boss doesn't promote you or overlooks you, he doesn't reward you, know this, God will reward you. God is paying attention. You know, Christians who are in business should set fair prices and use honest scales if you're in sales. Proverbs 16 and Proverbs 20 verse 10. There's an element of how we apply the work. What about private ownership? Should we, what should we do with the money we earn? Do we have the right to own land and have possessions? Well, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, we know that the, the, the commandment is, Thou shalt not steal. So we know, it's implied there, is that one person can own property and another can't, in the sense of, you know, don't steal it. The right to private property and ownership was so ingrained in Israel that not even the king had a right to take your land. You know, when Ahab tried to take Naboth's vineyard, he couldn't do it until Jezebel had an idea. 
So there was, there's a lot of ingrained ownership. But in Leviticus 25, God tells the people this, the land is mine. And sometimes we get stuck in that, it's mine. It's my property. Well, God says the land is His. You know, as a, as a reminder of this fact, the farmer's field had to be left unplowed and unused every seventh year. And every seventh year was called the year of release when all debts were canceled. Deuteronomy 15. The practice and why God did this was to prevent permanent indebtedness and permanent inservitude and permanent hopelessness in poverty. The year of Jubilee in the Old Testament put limits on a person's wealth so he wouldn't be able to accumulate land over many years. The Jubilee signaled a fresh start for the rich and the poor. In the New Testament, the norm was this, to share one's property generously. Disciples in the Bible owned private land and property. Yet there was no more of a year of Jubilee. When the New Testament came, the norm was generosity. So what were some of the lifestyles? There's, there's one lifestyle you see in the Gospels, and there's one lifestyle you see in the Epistles. Now, when you read the Gospels, you think that's the normal life. But there's a striking difference between the ministry of Jesus and all those who he asked, to, hey, leave what you have, leave it behind, and come follow me, versus the epistles. The people that were left in communities, who had to live, who had families, who owned homes. Not everyone went with Jesus. You know, Jesus called certain people to leave everything. Remember the rich young ruler? Sell everything you have. And come follow me. Or Luke 14, give up everything to be my disciple. But in the epistles, we have these established communities. Like, much like we have today. And these disciples were to have a radical attitude toward money and possessions as they lived with their families in their homes and worked and operated their own businesses. A good example is in Acts chapter 2 in verse 45. It says this, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Acts chapter 4 verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. If they didn't claim it was theirs, then whose was it? If they're not claiming it's theirs, then who's it belong to? The government? No. The Lord. The land is mine. And there are two callings when it comes to money and possessions. One is to leave behind family and possessions, and the other is to go back to them. When you leave your family and possessions, like the apostles, they left their businesses to go follow Jesus and travel with them. And their needs were met by the communities. In Mark 10, Peter says, Lord, we left everything to follow you. Then in Mark 5, the demoniac says, hey, I want to come with you. And Jesus says, no, go back to your families. So there's two types. Ones who went Jesus and traveled with him, 
and were supported by the community, and the others were called to go back into their own hometowns and establish the Christian community there. Both callings served the same purpose. They glorified God and they furthered the kingdom of God. So what do you value as a disciple? Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Let's read together. Mark chapter 8. How do we handle money and possessions? You know, we're great for just to have a few, a few extra bucks in our wallet. Honestly, sometimes we're like, hey, I found 20 bucks. It's like, whoa, I found 20 bucks. Sometimes I lift my little cubby and my, my little console. I'm going, hey, I forgot I left five bucks in there. That's like made my day. Today I looked and there was nothing in there. I was like, oh, nothing in there. It was some like, pennies and stuff, but usually, sometimes I, I'll throw a few bills in there and just try to forget about it, and then one day I go, oh, I forgot about that. I'm encouraged. <laughs> Look at the scripture. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Then he called the crowds to them, along with his disciples, and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, and this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory and of the holy angels. You know, the economic terms in this passage are striking. The word save, lose, gain. Forfeit, give, and exchange. All the disciples were to, were to have a radical calling in how they should handle money and possessions. Whether they were called to leave their possessions behind for the kingdom and go with Jesus, or to retain ownership for being generous and for kingdom purposes. You know, in Mark 10, that rich young ruler he came to Jesus. He kept all the commandments. But Jesus asked him to sell his possessions and follow him. And this is crucial because when, sometimes when you read that passage, you think that's universal for everybody. And those who don't do that aren't disciples. We know that Jesus loved him. But we also know that Jesus knew the insides and outs of his heart. And gave him the calling that he needed. And there are two common errors in interpreting that passage. One is to conclude that Jesus always calls his disciples to sell their possessions and give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasures in heaven. That's an error. Because then how would we be able to support ourselves? Who would support us? Who would help? There'd be no one left. would be wandering nomadically. <laughs> two, the other common error, and equally serious, is to conclude that God never calls his disciples to sell and give everything to the poor. God does call us sometimes. Don't think that he doesn't call you to do that. That's a mistake too. Today there's still two kinds of disciples. One who gives up his income and possessions to further the cause of God's kingdom. Maybe he goes to missionary. Maybe he goes to Manila. Maybe he goes to a third world country and takes a suitcase and I'm going to go live there and spend my days there and help the kingdom of God. There's one kind of disciple. And then there's the other. who stays in the community earns an income, and gives generally to support that cause. Today, there are still two kinds of disciples. But there's not a third kind. 
There's not a disciple in the Bible who does whatever he or she feels like with their money and possessions and fails to use them for kingdom purposes. You don't see that in the scripture. And by New Testament standards, those that third kind who want to call themselves the third kind, they're not disciples. Because that's not what we see in the scriptures. They stayed, had communities, and their calling was to be generous with it. So what does that mean then? How can I be generous in my lifestyle? I'm just happy to find five bucks in my console. What should our lifestyle be? I got a few thoughts about that. Romans 12, 13, 1 Timothy 5, verse 10, and 1 Peter 4, 9 says, Offer hospitality. That's a lifestyle of giving. Whether you should have a Christian in your home and someone who's not a Christian in your home. And you're being hospitable. Not just with food. Sometimes it's with medicine. Sometimes, you know, you, you have oil and, and someone has a cold and you're dying. Hey, I got some extra Tylenol. Here you go. Hospitality. It's just a lifestyle of generosity. A lifestyle of giving. Hey, hey, you're having a hard time? You had, you had an unexpected, irregular expense? You, you, this, this happened, your car broke down, it cost you 900 bucks? That'll blow your budget. Big time. Guess what the community does? Hey, we can help out. But see, since our lifestyles is up to here, we struggle. We want to be generous, but we're stuck. And I see that in our church. I think we have amazing hearts. I truly believe that. But I also believe we're stuck. We want to be. But we're stuck in trying to be generous. You know, this scripture assumes that disciples have houses, beds, chairs, food, drinks, medicine, provisions. You know, Luke 14 says, you know, giving up everything. Or, it also could mean giving over everything. Imagine if you have a lifestyle, everything I have, I'm willing to give over. I'm willing to donate, generate, I'm willing to give it. You know, my family, Karen and I, uh, was a Catholic charity in our, in our local city there. I care not of the organization. All I know is that they're, they're giving stuff out to the community. And Karen and I, we give a lot of things to that little charity. Not just our honoring our God with our tithing, but there are things that we don't use anymore that, that, are, that are, it's new. We can, we can easily Craigslist it. Easily make a few bucks. But I was convicted many years ago on, hey, I got to be a generous Christian, not only to the kingdom, but to people. The poor, the needy. You know, we gave away, you know, Jaden's little, um, you know, bed one time. It cost us a little bit of money, and then it was still in great condition. We could have Craigslisted it and got some money back on our investment. But we gave it to the, and they were, they were so shocked. They were so surprised. I know a little boy that would like this. I'm like, make sure we give it to that boy then. It feels great to be generous, does it not? It feels awesome to be generous. So regarding our possessions and lifestyle, God gives us principles. Jesus doesn't give us a checklist. I wish he did, but he doesn't. He doesn't tell you what you cannot and cannot own or what you cannot and cannot spend. But he does, says, does say many things about money and possessions. Got to remember, there's more scriptures in the Bible. 2,300 scriptures. 
about money and possessions and how to handle it. More than faith, more than love, more than any topic. Because to God, if we get this on straight, our chances of going to heaven are far greater. Because this is the one thing that slows us down as Christians. On one hand, he says, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth. But on the other hand, Paul says, hey, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Notice that Paul doesn't say that those who are rich should stop being rich. He doesn't say that. They were some wealthy Christians in the churches. The Ethiopian eunuch was wealthy. Cornelius was wealthy and political and powerful. Mary and Martha had a large home. They had servants, and they, people gathered there to pray. Meetings in, in the early churches took places in homes. Priscilla and Aquila were accomplished tent makers. And let me say this. We have both sides of the spectrum in this church. Those of us who are less wealthy should not be intimidated by the more affluent Christians. And the more affluent disciples should not look down on the less affluent because God hates favoritism. So if you have less, don't be embarrassed or shy to talk to the affluent Christians in this church. And if you're affluent, don't be distant with the ones who are less affluent. God does not appreciate that. Paul leaves an open door for Christians to be rich in this present world. But only if they carefully follow the guidelines related to their open-handed use of wealth. Now the rich are not told to take a vow of poverty. But they are essentially told to take a vow of generosity. Amen. They are to be rich in good deeds, quick to share, and quick to part with their assets for kingdom causes. In doing so, they lay up treasures for themselves. So the question is, how much money and how many possessions can we safely keep? That's the question I had. Well, how much can I? Can I have, Lord? See, that's why I wish there was a checklist. There wasn't. Scriptures teach us enough to care for our basic needs and some wants. But not so much that we're distracted from our central purpose. Or that we keep large amounts of money away from kingdom causes. Not so much that it insulates us from our dependence on God. Matthew 6, verse 26, 29. A $100,000 salary should not be accompanied by a $100,000 lifestyle. Because then you can't be generous. You cannot be generous. And all the way our world works, a hundred grand is a hundred grand of stuff. Take it to the max. Live in the dream. And then you become a Christian and you're like, Give, give, give money. I, I don't have money to give God. I don't have money to help. And you're stuck right there. Mm 
$100,000 salary does not mean a $100,000 lifestyle. So what am I saying? The objective nature to Paul's statement of why God entrusts riches to us is that so we can help those who have too little. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 14. And to be generous on every occasion. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. That's why he entrusts us with riches. So we can be generous with it. By Gio, how do I do this? How do I have that conviction? Well, John 14 says, the Holy Spirit is going to teach you these things. He's going to remind you the words of Jesus. He's going to remind your soul that, man, what I make doesn't mean I have to max it out. I want to be generous. God calls us to be generous. You know, I love helping another Christian out. One time we gave away a brand spanking new refrigerator to a Christian couple. It was, it was awesome. Their refrigerator broke down. And we had an extra one in the garage just for soda. <laughs> Seriously. And beers. It's kind of like my little bat cave in there. You know, I had the brothers over here, I got a refrigerator. And there was a need. They have kids. They couldn't buy a new you know, refrigerator. It costs at least you know, 800, 900 bucks. Craigslist, maybe 400 if it works. Felt good. That gave us just the, the, the beginnings of, that felt so good, we're going to do that more often. That was many years ago. So what should we do? Let me give you a principle. Let me encourage you to embrace this. Two words. Live simply. We should live more simply so we can give more generously. Why? Because heaven is our home. We should live more simply and give more generously because it frees us up and shifts our center of gravity. You know, Copernicus sparked a revolution when he, when he told us the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. When we're generous, we surrender our possessions to their proper center of gravity. And that's God. That's a good feeling. We should live more simply and give more generously because the world needs to be saved. Amen. You know, we have a, a vision for Norway and the Baltics. And they're doing great work up there. People are getting, becoming disciples. And people are getting saved. And it's going well. But you know what's missing in our local missions? Is our central coast. San Luis Obispo, Santa Maria, Paso Robles, Monterey. Right here, right here, our own backyard. There are few and scattered disciples along the coast. So part of our special missions this year is I want to take, I want to take one multiple of our special and give it to local missions. Santa Barbara, four years ago, was replanted. It was replanted. It used to be a church of 175 disciples, almost 200. It went down to almost 15. So the North region, with some money that we got from, from the, when they sold the Upside Down Club, invested in a plan to put a minister there to the work. Now Santa Barbara has 60 disciples. But the work's not done there. They still need some help. Because from Santa Barbara, guess what goes next? No. San Luis Obispo, Santa Maria. 
Paso Robles, Atascadero, Arroyo Grande. There's so many communities up there. We got to get there, local and far away. Let's live simply. We should live more simply and give more generously because we can truly be God's disciples. The New Testament kind. You know, a lot of times when someone's in need, you know, our first reaction is, at least mine is, do they have a budget? You know, and on one hand, yeah, they need, need to be organized, but sometimes things just come up and they just need stuff. They need help. They need a car battery. Maybe they're stuck where they can't, and that's where those who, us who are living simply, can be so much generous. It feels so good to help. Sometimes we have disciples who just are put, hard time putting food on the table sometimes. And I want to encourage those Christians, accept the generosity. Sometimes our pride gets in the way where we don't want to tell anybody and we don't want to tell anyone our struggles. But you prevent God from really working. You know, we want to be generous. I believe the Shoreline Disciples are generous disciples. Money, possessions, and eternity. It's important to God. And it's important to the cause of God's kingdom. Let's live simply so we can become more generous. Thank you, and God be glory. Um, great to have you. We're going to take up contribution.